0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. You're
2: listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, September 26, 2018. This is the 190th episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an uber-talented chef, cookbook author, and TV personality, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, And then later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to never be afraid to fail, one of the many valuable lessons taught by the late Julia Child. Julia said, in no uncertain terms, cooking is one failure after another, and that's how you learn. Failing can be seen as learning another way to do or not to do something, and it can not only make you a better chef, but beyond the kitchen, a better person. So let's not be afraid of failure, but instead embrace the success that comes from making mistakes. And don't we all want to be a little more like Julia? That's my tip today. Now, I'm very thrilled to have my guest here with me in the studio. It is Sarah Moulton. She is the host of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public telev- television, currently in its eighth season. With a storied career that stretches back more than 30 years, Sarah, a protege of Julia Child, and the co-founder of the New York Women's Culinary Alliance was the executive chef of Gourmet Magazine, food editor of ABC's TV's Good Morning America, and the host of several well-loved shows on the Food Network during that channel's first decade. She's the author of many cookbooks. She is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America and the University of Michigan, Go Blue. I don't know if Sarah knows or remembers this, but I'm a grad of Michigan. Whoa. So no, I didn't. That's my, that's my intro. Welcome, Sarah. Well, thank you, Sherry. Yeah, I, I, that, that was going in the, my intro bio because when I see Michigan grads, I'm like, that's my school. Yes, yes, I loved it, loved it, loved it. Yeah, me too, me too. So, but so, you went to Michigan, and I, I want to know you then went to the CIA. So let's let's go with your background as far as when did you know you wanted to cook and become a chef? Was that something in your childhood that you thought you'd you see in I n- the future?
4: I never knew. My mother figured it out. Okay. I went to the University of Michigan and pursued becoming a doctor, a lawyer, a biological medical illustrator. <laughs> I should have gone to the L, uh, education school Okay, because I was always interested in teaching and I'd done a lot of tutoring both in New York City where I grew up and also when I went to Michigan in the public school system. But um, I ended up always with cooking jobs um, and probably that's because I grew up. Uh, in New York City. My mom started traveling to Europe when I was in high school. She'd come back and have to make a meal from the place she'd just been. And we fortunately lived in New York City so we could get the ingredients, you know, for paella or hispanacopit. I mean, back then it was exotic. We're talking about the 60s for somebody in the United States. But also we had the New York Times cookbook. So we would throw these dinner parties. And I learned so much from my mom, who was a fantastic cook. And then I went off to, you know, college and had cooking jobs. So I'm floundering a year after I graduated from U of M. I'm cooking slinging burgers in a bar, the Del Rio. Did you ever go there? Yes. It was a fantastic jazz bar, and uh, we had so much fun. It was run like a commune, but it was great, and I made... (laughs) These, I was very proud of my soups, which, of course, were based on terrible soup base, you know, that stuff that's 100% salt. <laughs> but um, she was horrified that I was not pursuing any career, so she wrote to Craig Claiborne and Julia Child, did not ask my permission or tell me she was doing it, and said, if my daughter wants to become a chef, what should she do? Julia didn't write back, which is odd because Julia always wrote everybody back, but Craig did, and he said if she wants to become a chef, she should either go to the hotel school in Lausanne, or the CIA in the United States. And I didn't want to go to Switzerland. I was just way too far. I didn't want to actually leave my boyfriend or my job. This was all a lark to mm-hmm. me. But I thought, well, what the heck, I'll apply to the CIA. They won't accept me. I don't even know how to use a chef's knife. And to my horror, they did. So I went to my boyfriend and I said, oh, you don't want me to go, do you? And he said, "Um, yeah, I do, actually. I want to see other women. So... That, between my mother approaching the whole thing and my boyfriend saying, see ya, <laughs> you know, I had to go to the CIA, and I'm so glad I did.
3: Uh, yeah, wow, I did not know that story. That's great. Yeah. So then after the CIA, did you... Well, tell me, what did you do? Did you move to New York, and how did you mo- meet Julia?
4: Well, at, at the CIA, I just decided I wanted to be the best chef I possibly could of a small dining establishment. And that nasty boyfriend actually ended up moving to Boston to be near me. Or he says, for other reasons, you know, I say to be near me. Is that me.
3: boyfriend who became your husband? Yes. Okay. Of 30, <laughs> 37 years. I, okay.
4: Yeah, that crazy That's husband, Bill, Bill Adler. Um, so I thought, well, I'll give him one last shot. Uh so So I did my externship in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the Harvest restaurant, which is the only restaurant left that, you know, that I ever worked at. And that's how I started there. Um, And I, and that's where, not at the Harvest, but in Cambridge, I met Julia because I was working as the chef manager of a catering operation at, that was my next job, this place called Carrison Row Caterers. And one day I was peeling a million hard boiled eggs with one of my workers and talking about how Julia cooks her eggs, which is to not boil them. Um, and the, my worker, her name was Barrett Pratt, said, Well, you know, I'm a volunteer on Julia's show. And I said, Really? Do you think she'd like another volunteer? And Barrett said, Well, we're about to tape another season. Let me ask her. So the next day, Barrett came in and she said, I told Julia all about you and she wants to hire you. And I was like, Whoa, uh, I haven't even met her. So I went down to the corner pay phone and called her up. And of course, Julia was listed. So, all these nutcases could call her on Thanksgiving with dumb questions like, I've left my turkey in the heated garage for three days. Do you think it'd be okay if I cooked it now? Um, I mean, but anyway, so she picked right up and she said, Oh, hello, dearie. I've heard all about you. Do you food style? Now, back then, food styling wasn't the codified art that it is now. Um, So, I had to do some quick thinking how am I going to answer this? And I thought, well, you know, you were artistic in high school. <laughs> you know, when you worked at the harvest, you garnished things nicely. Um, you know, um, I just did cold poached, decorated salmon for 700 at Kerosene and So I said what anybody else would have said if they were smart, which is, yeah, I'm really good. So I got hired. Yeah. That's,
3: that's incredible. What's a, what's a favorite takeaway or memory you have from, from working with her? I mean, I threw in my, she has so many tips and
4: quotes
3: and she's a legend.
4: Well, in terms of the PC ones, because there was things that she said <laughs> that were
3: outrageous. Is, well, this is heritage radio. You can get I, away
4: with whatever you no, want. No, you don't want to hear the worst of the worst. Uh, I mean, it wasn't the worst, but it's not for public yeah. consumption unless everybody's had 10 glasses of wine. But um, I think my favorite is, and it's back to where you started with your tip this evening, that cooking is all about failure, and failure is good, because you learn more. My favorite was, uh, she used to say, Never apologize, never explain. The idea being that people have come over to your house. I mean, she's thinking about talking about entertaining. And first of all, they're so glad that you cooked and they didn't you know, and that you're giving them this experience, don't tell them everything you did wrong. You know, which I still, I as much as I, I have that up on my refrigerator, never apologize, never explain. So I tried desperately not to tell them how it could have been better. You know, I should have reduced it, it needed more salt, it needed some acid, it needed pointing up, you're not getting enough chili, Um so that's one of my favorites.
3: It's a good one because I feel like everyone's tendency or a lot of people is to start apologizing or explaining.
4: And, and to worry. And, you know, recently, because as you said, I've been cooking over 30 years. It's actually 40. Um, I won't tell anyone. I started when I was just 10. But at any rate, um, when people say, how do I learn how to cook? My new answer is just cook because you can teach yourself so much. And you're right about the mistake thing with Julia. She was klutzy. Um, you know, so that Saturday night live thing with Dan Aykroyd was actually based on something that happened. And by the way, she had a copy of that and used to show it at dinner parties. Um, and she would break things and drop things and cut herself and stuff when we were working. Cause I continued to work with her, at, you know, at various places for the rest of my life or her life. My yeah. life is not over yet. Um, and, uh, after a while, she started going out of her way to make mistakes so that she could show you how to fix them and show you that it's no big deal. And that was one of the biggest takeaways I learned doing TV, because uh, I started out with a live call in show, is that it's fine to make a mistake. And because if I make a mistake on national TV, why should, and the same thing for Julia, why should you worry about the mistakes you make in the privacy of your own kitchen?
3: Yeah. True. So how did you go from food styling or behind the scenes into being a TV-on-camera personality. Well,
4: I never wanted to be on TV, so I continued working in restaurants for seven years. That was my goal. And when the husband dragged me to New York, I came to New York with him. And what happened was, Julia, I missed her because we all hung out with her a lot. We had, like, a little community of people. We would throw dinner parties at her house, which was always very funny because she was 6'3", and I'm 5 feet, and the counters were all real high, and everything was very high. (laughs) But we had so much fun. As a matter of fact, we'd be cooking, and she'd turn around and say to all of us, we having so much fun <laughs> and inevitably we were but I missed her when I came to New York and she started working at Good Morning America. So one time because I wanted to have dinner with her, I volunteered to come in and help her prep for free so that she could have dinner with me. By then I was working at the restaurant of a girlfriend and um, we had dinner and the very next day GMA hired me to work for her there and I could only do it for a short while because the restaurant I was at didn't want me to have a second job. So that was 81. But I went back in 87 to do prep for her and then for all the chefs who are on GMA. And I did that for 10 years, almost 10 years. And that was great uh, because I learned about food TV in its somewhat early stages. I mean, Mm -hmm. sure, Julie already had a PBS show, but back then it wasn't you know, understood that any chef who goes on TV like it is now needs to be media savvy and needs to get up and do what they have to do and be funny and demo and tips and this and that. So these guys, it was mostly men, but there was women too, it was cookbook authors, were all nervous. And my job was to do the prep, to set them up, to do the food styling, and when the food producer wasn't there, to take them through the rehearsal and make decisions like, Suddenly, there's a crisis. We've got three minutes instead of five, meaning something's happened because it was live news on GMA. Right. And because of that, I, A, got to know so much about food TV and how it's made, but also made a lot of friends. You know, we had regulars. You name them, they were on the show. You know, Martin Yan, and more old, sco- mm-hmm. old school, old guard. Martin Yan, Wolfgang Puck. Um Charlie Trotter to this, well, he's now deceased, but I own every single one of his cookbooks personally signed to me because he was such a nervous wreck and I made him relax. So he became my friend for life.
3: I worked for him. I don't know if you know that. No. I was a server at Charlie Trotter's in 97 and 98.
4: Wow.
3: Yeah. So wow. Yeah. It was an incredible experience. I feel very grateful I had that opportunity. He was a very unique individual. Very unique. And it was He was intense. It was, it was a tough yes, job, yes. but I learned so much.
4: I, I'm not sure I would have wanted to work <laughs> for him, but I was happy yeah. to be a colleague. Yeah. Although I was a little bit annoyed. The first time I was nominated for a James Beard Award, for Best National TV Show was when I was doing Cooking Live and I lost to him. Oh. Kitchen Sessions. And I was like, d- damn it, you know, <laughs> I taught him everything he needed to know about being I d- I didn't, but you know what I mean. That's but funny. I didn't care. It was fine. It was a wonderful show. So that's how I ended up behind the scenes at GMA. And then because I was behind the scenes at GMA when the Food Network started, they asked me to run the kitchen at the Food Network. So this is 93, Uh 94. I had lunch with Reese Schoenfeld and Sue Hoffman. Sue Hoffman was uh, a food editor. She'd been at Good Housekeeping and... Not Good Housekeeping, at Ladies' Home Journal and various other places, and I knew her well. And she and I and Reese had lunch... And uh, he asked me if I wanted to run the kitchen. And at the time, I was working at Gourmet Magazine, and I had good benefits. I'd left restaurant industry so I could have kids, because I realized I couldn't really be working 80 hours a week and have kids. And then after I had the kids, I realized I needed to be home um, sometimes, right. you know. So at any rate, um, I said, oh, no, I don't think this network's going to last. <laughs> I don't want to do that, and I've got benefits. And then they said, well, would you like to be a food editor? And I said, no, is that a desk job? And they said, yeah. And I was like, no. I, by then, I was the chef, chef of the executive dining room at Gourmet, and I didn't want to do a desk job. as a chef. And then they said, do you want to do on air? Now, that is something I never wanted to do. I, I really stayed away from it. I thought it was awful. It's funny. I adore Julia, but I thought people who want to be on TV need too much attention. <laughs> you know, that's just, you know, tacky. But I, the GMA had just put me on for fun as their secret weapon, and it went pretty well. So I said, sure, let me try out. So I tried out, I did a pilot for How to Boil Water, which ah, is a show that right. had many incarnations. Oh, Emeril right. at the time was doing it, and he wasn't good at that show. They knew he was an enormous talent, however. Um, and so they asked me to do it. I went in, I did a 15-minute pilot. on. They, they were in some brownstone right. over on 39th Street at that point. And I, I d- said everything I wanted to. I went through the three recipes, but I was awful. Because when I was on GMA, I was on with Joan and Charlie, and it's very different being on with hosts than it is being on alone in front of the camera. Right. So... I walked out of there. My hands never stopped shaking either. I held up the asparagus to show what it should look like, and the asparagus is (laughs) flopping around in the air because my hand's shaking. So I said, oh, what the heck. I never really wanted to do that anyway. But the Food Network was so desperate in the early days. They didn't have any money to bring people from the outside, so they just had to work with what they had at hand in New York City. And I guess I had a reputation as being a good teacher because by now I was teaching at Peter Kump's New York Cooking School. I always had more than one job. I blame Julia for that. So I worked during the day at Gourmet, and then two times a week I taught at Peter Combs. And I think it must have been Jacques Pepin might have said to them, she's a good teacher, because I also worked with him. Yeah. And um, so they asked me back for Chef du Jour, which was five half-an-hour shows, and I got serious media training for that. And so, frankly, I was only marginally better, but better enough and better than, I guess, the rest of the chefs on Chef de Jour that they offered me this live call-in show, Cooking Live. Well, you are a great teacher, and you are amazing on camera.
3: And I remember, I still think back about that show. I do not know how you did that and made it look so easy. You are cooking on camera it was, like, every night at, like, 7, or I think. 7 to 8 and, Eastern, yeah. And you're taking calls, and you're, it, it's, you're
4: brilliant. I don't know how you did that show. Well, you know, first of all, I was channeling Julia. You know, be honest about what yeah. you know and you don't know. And be welcoming and, and um, include people. And secondly, it's really funny, because I went to this very rigorous uh, high school, uh, girls' high school in New York City called the Brerly School. And at the time, I thought I didn't like it. You know, it was just all I did was study. I had no adolescence because I was just too busy studying because I wanted to keep up because it was so rigorous. And fast forward years later, doing Cooking Live, I was like, thank God for Brirly because it taught me how to study. So every day I go to gourmet and I'd work and I knew that I had to go out and do the show that night on the subject of meatloaf. So I'd have to I would research every ingredient that would be involved with us doing meatloaf so that I could spit it I could answer questions that night. And it was because of Brerley that I was able to study, get it in the head computer, and answer the questions. So that's how I managed. Awesome. Okay, we're going to take a little break here
3: and we're going to come back and talk more with Sarah. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Sarah Moulton. She's a chef cookbook author and T V personality. She's currently hosting season eight of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? Jump ahead. Because um, you're on season eight and I've I've been I've been catching up on a bunch of episodes. You have a lot of great content out there.
4: We do. We actually have our own YouTube channel. I mean, big deal, it's very easy to do called It's a Sarah Weeknight Meals. You know, uh, YouTube channel. So we put all the old shows up there, or most of them. That's my producer partner's problem, not mine.
3: Well, the shows, the videos that are on your website, are they, are they? What content is that? The,
4: some of those are from my shows, okay, and some of those are from event, you know, things that I've done.
3: Yeah, because I was, I've, I've been watching those. And how did you? So what's what I noticed about the different shows is there's there's different formats. Sometimes you're cooking with the chef in your kitchen. Sometimes you're on the road traveling. You're at chef's restaurants. You're, it's like a variety show and it, it really works.
4: Well, thank you. The focus was always supposed to be weeknight meals. So, you know, the first couple of seasons, it was me making dinner with sometimes with guests and sometimes alone. And then we just thought, you know. Enough with the chef behind the counter business. Not that we won't still have serious recipes being made by me or by somebody else, but let's make it more interesting because there's so much going on out there in the food world. You know, there's farmers doing cool things and wonderful new ingredients and you know, also, we have been traveling. You're right about that. And some of it has to do with actually some of our sponsors, I'll be honest. You know, one of my sponsors for this season is Oceana, wonderful cruise line, uh, that has a serious cooking school on board set up by Jacques Pepin. And they are sponsored the show. So you find yourself in Italy and Spain. You know, what are you going to do except, you know, go do cooking with the people? So we had to find locals and the idea being that it's a little bit hard to keep it to weeknight meals when you go to Europe or other places because they spend a little more time cooking than we do so what they would consider a weeknight meal somebody in the United States might not because there's a little more time involved for those people But anyway, it's really fun to take a home cook and cook with them in Italy or France or, you know, Spain, which is what we did in Season 8. And then we also uh, ended up going out to California and cooking with this really fun rice farmer. And he does his own podcast called Rice Farming TV. And he's just adorable. He's like 6'4". He looks like a stretched-out version of my son, Sam. And um, so... I went into, you know, learned about how sushi rice is grown, that's what he grows. He, his, he's, his family's always grown it, and he's taken over. He's got a beautiful wife and a little daughter, you know, it's one of those sort of romantic stories. And it was, uh, I learned about how the rice is grown, I actually got to pull up a stalk of rice and and eat it, and that was interesting. <laughs> sort of tasted like grass. And um, <laughs> then we made sushi with a, a local chef. So we just try to mix it up and keep it interesting, and also deal with some of the issues that are important. You know, like sustain. You know, I don't want to sound boring, but it's important. You know, sustainability and organics and foraging and waste and those were all the things I couldn't do on the Food Network. They wouldn't let me. Mm-hmm. If I even talked about sanitation, they would scream because they're like, "Oh, everybody's going to change the channel." because they don't want to hear bad things. And it's not bad things. It's just yeah. things people need to know.
3: Yeah, I I agree. And you have the freedom to do what you want to do now.
4: We can do anything <laughs> we want, except the one thing I would hate to do, which is to promote products on air. Um, so God bless our advertisers, because they understand that I'm not going to be talking about their products on air. Um, you know, I might help get the good word out, say, about Duck, because one of our sponsors had been a Duck producer. And I, um, I learned a lot about... I love Duck anyway, so it's an easy... I, we don't have advertisers in the list. I love them to begin with. Yeah. So I can help promote the good word about Duck, which helps them, but it's not specifically their brand. So that's how I can help them. But God bless them that they come on board, and, you know, I do extra things for them outside, but I'm so happy... That I'm not hawking product, that we're just doing pure TV.
3: Yeah, and it feels that way. And it's also there's you're 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 very you're so nice and you have this way of asking questions and like letting the other chef kind of lead. And I, I don't know, you're just it's a very smart how you do you do your interviews or your on camera appearances. It's um and it makes I feel like it also it, 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 it does it, it brings it down to level where, you know, you're 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 doing the show so people will will cook or not be intimidated. And it definitely um I don't know, I was watching episodes and it was made me
4: wanna wanna cook for well, sure. Well you made my day there. That's what I yeah. want. Yeah, you want it to be exciting. Uh, you want people to feel that they can do it. You know, it's all about empowering. Empowering. That's a hard mm-hmm. word. I think that's what Julia wanted to do, too, although it's crazy because she was doing these really complicated <laughs> recipes all the while telling you, oh, this is so easy. You can do it. You of course, make your own ballotine of turkey, you know. And after 500 steps, you're like, I don't think so. But it it was, I think, she, even so, right. she got people cooking for sure.
3: Yeah. And you've also written several cookbooks So how, I mean, do you, do you enjoy writing, writing books or is that, and how do you manage your time between doing books and TV and appearances on radio shows? it's less (laughs) stressful now than it
4: used to be because I worked full time at Gourmet Magazine the whole time I was on the Food Network and I I was on the Food Network for 10 years. Amazing. And I did 1,500 shows for them, 1,200 of that live call-in, which was the first six years. That was probably the most stressful. So it's a lot less stressful now than it was. But in terms of the cookbooks, so I did the first one because my uh, book agent, uh, who I'd done a, a couple of books with as a silent author before, said, your, your name is out there. You should go jump on this. So the first one I did, I've always had a partner, a wonderful woman. You may know her, Joanne Lamb-Hayes. Oh,
3: right, sure.
4: And she's she also works on my website, and she's fantastic. You know, She worked at uh, women's magazines in New York, including Redbook. I think it was red book was her last one, and um, she was, she is great. So she helped me with my first three. By the time I got to my fourth, I couldn't really pay anybody. So I got two wonderful externs from ICC, two women, to each one worked six months with me, and they came to my house, you know, I think five days a week maybe, yeah, I think it was five days a week, and would test recipes in the afternoon. So it was good training for them, and I got the job done. In terms of the actual writing, so as you well know, I'm sure, a huge part of doing a cookbook is writing the recipe, and Joanne was fantastic for that. These women couldn't really help me with that because they were learning themselves. But in terms of the copy, the way it's always worked is back to that nasty man in Ann Arbor who I ended up marrying for 37 years. Bill Adler is a writer. So we are partners, although he never wants credit. So I write something. This is true for all of my cookbooks, and I now do an AP column, and I did do a Washington book. Anything I write, I write the copy. I give it to him. He translates it into English. He gives it back to me. I tell him he's lost my voice, put it back here and there and there and there, and then he redoes it. And it sounds like me. I know it does. So it's, it's a good partnership.
3: For sure. Yeah. And speaking of Joanne, we have to talk a little about the New York Women's Culinary yes, Alliance we do. because I don't know if my listeners know this, but I was the president for two years in around two thousand thirteen and you founded the organization. Right. So how how did the idea come about and not you created something that has just lasted and become stronger and stronger. It's, it's, it's amazing. Well, it's
4: very funny how it came about. Um, when I was in Cambridge, you know, for those years uh, working with Julia, which was from like 77 to 81. um, We had a whole community of women who would get together on a regular basis with Julia and, and some men too, but mostly women. So we all decided that we should form an organization there. So we did. It was called the Boston Women's Culinary Guild. I believe it's still in existence and it's now the New England Culinary Guild And it's men and women. But the idea being that men have boys' clubs, women don't. Let's form ours. So I moved to New York in 81. It was very hard to get a job because talk about a boys' club. The restaurants were in lockdown because all the chefs were European chefs, and they'd rather close their restaurants than hire a woman. So I had a very hard time getting a job. I did not find the city very friendly. And I met a whole bunch of people from Gourmet Magazine and became friends with them, and then I ended up eventually working there. But in, I think it was, so... The Alliance, I believe, was founded in 83. Um, I think,
3: was that
4: the... I'm looking at you as an ex-president, hoping you remember.
3: No, it was because we did, yeah, that we did that. We had the 30th anniversary celebration when I was the president. Okay, So, yeah. so 83.
4: So, I was the first scholarship winner for Les Dames Descafiers in 1977. Les Dames d'Escarfier is a international women's organization that... Is pretty darn amazing. There's forty-three chapters now. It
3: is, and I'm I'm now a member of Les Dames too. Yes, which, is, which happens,
4: yeah. uh, and that's sort of where I'm going with this one. And and there's chapters all over the country. There's chapters in Europe. There's chapters in Asia. It's fantastic. But the thing about Les Dames des Café, which was founded by Carol Brock. Um, who was working at the, Who was from the Daily News, a writer, is that you have to be accomplished in the field before you can get into the group, mm-hmm. and that is a bit of a problem for women just starting out. So Carol Brock, because she knew who I was, because I was one of the first scholarship winners in nineteen seventy seven, approached me and said, "Would I consider starting a junior laydom?" And so I got together with Mariah Rouge, who. Um, worked at Gourmet Magazine, and who'd become a good friend. I worked with her husband at La Tulipe. He was the chef de cuisine. And he said, oh, you got to meet my wife. And uh, I met Mariah, and we just really hit it off, and I got to know everybody gourmet. So Mariah and I got together with a bunch, a hardcore bunch of women from Gourmet, to sort of come up with a template for a junior laidame. And we went to the board meeting to make the presentation. And Carol, unfortunately, had not really shared with the board of directors at the time what she had suggested that it was her idea so mariah and i go in and at that point you know we're in our i don't even know if we'd hit 30 yet yeah i guess we had uh maybe we're 32 whatever um we go in to make this presentation to the board director. So there's like 10 of them there and they're all, I won't mention who they were, but really established names, uh, women in the industry. And we made our presentation and it's, we were just rebuffed. They were like, who the hell do you think you are? You know, don't you understand that you have to deserve to join lay dom? Does that mean when you turn 35, you automatically become a member? I don't think so. Um, because the way you get into Les Doms, you have to get recommendations, mm-hmm. you have to be nominated, you have to, be, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so I was thrilled, actually. And the funniest thing is this meeting was held at 1 Lexington Avenue, which is where I grew up. Uh, in, the, in the apartment of Jean Anderson who was one of my major mentors and she was supportive but the rest of them were not and so I'm sort of an, on my home turf you know my parents no longer live there but that's where I grew and so Mariah and I go out to Gramercy Park you know just to walk out the door to just stand by the park and Mariah is fuming and you she's a nice southern girl you should have heard the expletives coming out of her mouth and I was like no, no 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 Mariah you don't understand this means we are free to do what we want to do So, and the reason we felt, and I felt a need too, because I, I, again, I felt like it's all a boys club, women need to help each other. And so we learned, we took sort of the premise of how we'd founded the Boston Women's Culinary Guild, tried to improve on it. Things like you have to live in the tri-state area or work in the tri-state area in order to become a member of, of the New York Women's Culinary Alliance so we didn't have absentee members. Also, that you had to be active in the group. Mm-hmm. I was the one who started that one. Yeah, but and, it's such a good one.
3: I mean, it's it. you need it for an all-volunteer organization. Because
4: otherwise, the same people do everything, do all yeah. the work. So. Um, we, we came up with all of that and other requirements. We came up with our own constitution, essentially. And, you know, the rest is history. So we started in 83, and the group is still going strong. And what's different about... I'm now members of both groups, too. It, what's different between the two is the Alliance will take... The New York Women's Culinary Alliance will take you right out of cooking school. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is work full-time, and we define that as 35 hours per week because some people do catering and you know, so you have to average it mm. out. Um, and so we have, and we've been working harder because sometimes the organization gets older and then we have to go back and recruit the younger members. But it's a place for them to go and they can find mentors. It's all about, it's two things. It's education and networking, period. Mm. It's not fundraising, which the right, LADAM right. does very, very well, and I applaud them for what they do. But it's, it's about networking and education, and I think we're doing a great job with it. I agree 100%. And
3: that note, let's take another break here, and we're going to come back, and then we're going to play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland, made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emi is best known for importing more than 80% of the Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach Cave Age cheeses, Der Charfa Max, Appenzeller, Tete de Moin, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emiusa.com.
3: And we're back. This is All in the Industry and Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Sarah Moulton. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I name a couple of things and you pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Chocolate. Fantastic! You're, so you're good. At, you're good. You're good to go. Okay, here we go. <laughs> There's no question there. Uh, that's my. I'm chocolate too. I'm with mm. you. Okay. How about eat in or eat out? Oh gosh, do I, both. Does anybody ever do that? <laughs> I've heard. I, I would. I was about to say I've heard everything, but I have not heard everything because every time I play this game, people have. Uh, their own unique answers and it's fantastic so i've heard
4: both but, okay so you, yeah i'd yes. like to eat out more i just don't have the money for it okay okay but i love cooking at home well you're a pro <laughs> mm-hmm. wine beer cocktail
3: or mocktail wine 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 tasting menu or a la carte oh
4: well, you're gonna i'd say tasting menu well, what I mean is I usually go in and order a bunch of ap- appetizers if I'm not going to get the tasting menu because I, d- I don't want to just have one big plate of entree.
3: Yeah, I find that way, especially yeah. when I'm dining solo. Yeah.
4: Um,
3: well, I have We just had a tasting Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter?
4: Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? I don't really care. I, it's to me what's most important is what's working for the workers. That's a nice answer. Like my friend Amanda Cohen, I, you know, at Dirt Candy, I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I did my informal sort of research when I was there and poll talked to the workers, and they all seem very happy with they're making whatever it is $20 $25 yeah. an hour. I don't know what it is, but it's something good and they like it. And she's been doing
3: that a while. She was really She one was the f-
4: first. Yeah, she, she didn't get credit back oh. to women never get credit. That New York Times article did not mention her. It's funny. I when I was watching
3: some of your videos, I saw the the one you did with her.
4: Yeah. Um, she's yeah. great. She was she was surprisingly shy with me because I don't think she's remotely shy. I mean, she was yeah. she was cute. I mean, her. I don't mean cute. Cute's the wrong word for Amanda. She's a very principled, very thoughtful chef. Uh, I think she came off as a good teacher, and I think her recipes were fantastic. Her um, this one where you make this bourbon whiskey drink with roasted lemons. Oh my god, that Fan- was the one I was watching. Yeah, oh, yeah, the best one, best. And I'm not a hard liquor person. Remember, wine, mm-hmm. wine, wine. That was right, one of the best right. things I ever drank.
3: Any rate. Anyway, yes. tipping, tipping, yes. We'll give her credit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please do. Okay, a few more. Writing books or hosting TV shows?
4: Oh, hosting TV shows. Books kill me, kill me, kill <laughs> me. Zingerman's or any other deli? i to throw that one oh, in. Oh, you go, Sherry. Do you know that Zingerman's did not exist when I went there? It only happened afterwards. But my husband, yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: I thought Zingerman's has been around since, like, Since like, the Earth's cross cool. Exactly. Not
4: true, not true. Okay. But I'm familiar with it because, among other things, my husband went to high school with Paul Saginaw, who, along with Ari, is one of the two owners. Oh, okay. So we've gone back, you know, I think it was about 10 years ago, and maybe even recently, and gone there and checked it out and checked out one of their restaurants and everything. So Zingerman's is pretty darn fantastic, but hey. New York delis, good old-fashioned mm-hmm. Jewish deli. Oh, They're pretty
3: special. All right, so I guess we'll give that a, a tie, a wash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate every time. Manhattan or Brooklyn?
4: Manhattan. I grew up here. I'm such a snob. Although my kids, of course, are in Brooklyn, and I go to Brooklyn a lot.
3: Here we are right now. And here we are right now. Fantastic. That's the game.
4: We oh. played a good game oh good well I'm sure all of your guests play a good game well
3: I don't know that's
4: no no it's, How could I, you not I
3: find it I find I've been doing this now a long time and I find every I'm completely entertained every time yes. because it's, it's it's always different right uh, so yeah okay so industry news so I found you know it's it's usually if I have two articles they don't have anything to do do with it, each other. But these two I thought were interesting because it's a, it's about branding or rebranding. So the two articles I have, one on Grub Street, Dunkin' Donuts is losing the donuts, keeping the donuts, which does not translate at all when you're saying in a radio because it's about the spelling of donuts. But basically Dunkin' Donuts is dropping the name, its name, to changing it to Dunkin', getting rid of the donuts, although they're going to be still still serving donuts. And they're going to keep the apostrophe. And yeah. Because it's, it's I, they're reaching out to the, the millennials with I don't know why I, I don't know I'm not sure this 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 article I saw the reasoning I'm I'm still not 100 percent sure why they're doing what they're doing. The other one is, uh, CNN Money. There was an article, uh, Weight Watchers is changing its names to WW, and this is referencing how it's it's referring to, to. Well, I saw something, wellness that works and just kind of changing its its branding to, to focus on wellness and not just weight loss. And that I'm, I am I fully get and I think is really cool. Uh, or I, I'm like, I see that more than I see the Duncan. I I guess it's more catchy just to have a, a shorter name. You know,
4: the, the article that I read said that the idea of having just one name is it's like Duncan is your pal. But if Duncan is your pal, then why is there an apostrophe at the end? You know, that to me is so weird because apparently, and I've witnessed this, I travel a lot to Boston because my dad lives there, and in the Boston South Station, station, there I'm always looking for food either coming or going, and there's a Starbucks and there's a Dunkin' Donuts. The Dunkin' Donuts has a line around the block. The Starbucks, eh, not so much. And that to me, you know, and I've seen it elsewhere at other uh, Dunkin' Donuts, they're really now becoming known for coffee. Yeah. Um, and um, apparently 60% of their sales is in beverages. So I guess they just felt they needed to reposition themselves. People will remi- will know it's Dunkin' Donuts, even though it's now called Dunkin'. Um, but, uh, you know, it sort of gives them a new spin, a new look, yeah. a new freshness, which I always think... And you would know better than me, because this is really your thing. You, you know, if you've been tried and true for so long, sometimes you get a little stale. You got to do something different.
3: Yeah, no, and that that is true. You got to was shake so, it up.
4: So smart that they started doing affordable coffee drinks. You can get a cappuccino there that isn't yeah. bad. You know, I I myself would always rather go to a place like Starbucks because I like a, a dark roast coffee. But my husband loves Dunkin' Donuts. Well, it's funny you
3: said that with traveling, because I I hit up Dunkin', like when I've been at Penn Station, or when I've been traveling, uh, I do, I like their coffee, I think it's, you know, good grab-and-go coffee. It's fine. Um, it's, uh, and yet, in the city, I, do, I never here in Manhattan go to Dunkin' Donuts, um, but I do go to Starbucks, I, I don't know why, that, it's just interesting.
4: Yeah, no, it is. Uh- well, also it's it's like uh, when you're traveling, you just got to get get anything. But also for millennials or younger people who are really on a budget, they can't spend five dollars on a coffee drink. Yeah. Um, whereas at Dunkin', you know they can get a cappuccino for I don't know what it is, two bucks. Right, right. I mean, it's it is. and it's huge. It's tall. It's it's very yeah. affordable. So, you know, it's like. Um, Whole Foods being taken over by Amazon, you know, just the perception. I don't know if the prices have gone down all that much because uh, I do shop at Whole Foods, among other places. But just the idea that they're trying to bring down the prices makes me go to Whole Foods more. Right. I mean, there's other reasons I go to Whole Foods. Uh, but um, over to Weight Watchers, I mean, the thing about the name change, I, I applaud uh, what did you? What is their wellness? What is it called? Wellness. Wellness that works. Wellness that works. You know that's a good motto, but WW? I don't know about that. We all associate that with world wars.
3: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't. I was, I was, I was more thinking just the whole wellness idea, um, a lifestyle. You know, eating eating well, well eating I, healthy versus being known for. You know, weight losing watchers weight. lose weight because sometimes losing weight—it peep the way in the past. People or now try to lose weight sometimes is not healthful or ways. You know, like, you know. So I, I like the idea of the wellness, but yeah, WW. I don't. It also, yeah, I, I don't know if uh, people will recognize that's what it is.
4: You know, they'll know that Duncan is Dunkin' Donuts. They will not know that WW is Weight Watchers. And listen, I couldn't agree with you more. And actually, Weight Watchers have been moving further and further in this direction for years. Because about every five years, I go back and do Weight Watchers all over again. Because it works. It mostly works. Um, Wellness works. There you go, WW. Yeah yeah yeah. okay okay you got me you
3: got me Sherry yeah Uh, okay well we're gonna take one more break here and come back and do my solo dining experience and then we'll have the final question I have to ask you my question from last week which I haven't asked you yet Uh, so uh, stay with us one more break and we'll be right back All in the Industry and Heritage Radio Network. It's time for my solo dining experience. Before I do it, I just wanted to give a shout out. I had this amazing lunch today at Laberna Den with chef Pano Caritasos. He has a new book out called Modern Greek Cooking, it was fantastic. He has a restaurant in Atlanta called Kyma, K-Y-M-A, and I just want to say thank you. It was really lovely. Okay, so solo dining this week. It's at Rondazzo's Clam Bar. Here's the rundown. The location, 2017 Emmons Avenue, Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, New York. The concept, long time Italian seafood joint serving raw bar fare and red sauce dishes in a casual waterfront venue. The owners, the Rondazzo family. So why did I go? Because after living in Manhattan for over 20 years, I decided it was time for me to check out this institution my experience. So this weekend I jumped on the Q train and I, I went out there for an early dinner. It took, you know, getting out there takes a little more than an hour, but it was totally worth it. Uh, when I got there, uh, it wasn't because it, I went early. It, it wasn't that busy by the time I left. It was, uh, I took a seat at the bar and uh, Charlie was my server. I found out he had worked there for 12 years and he was great. He, he, uh, you know, I ran what I was going to get, Uh, By him and he said it was good order so that was good so what did I get okay I went with the fried calamari with two red sauces regular and spicy and shrimp fra diavolo over pasta and Charlie was so kind he sent me out some uh, two raw clams to try and I also had a club soda so my take wow this place lived up to the hype I mean the calamari calamari was perfectly cooked not chewy at all. The sauces are amazing. I mean, it's a true red sauce joint. The sauces were all different from what I had on the shrimp to to the two ones with the calamari. They were all just so tasty and delicious. Um, I highly, highly recommend. So the ambiance, it's a very casual, brightly lit space and there's some fun fish lines and and decor by the bar. It's perfect for big appetites and groups because you're going to want to order everything. Interesting tidbit, Randazzo's has been serving Brooklyn since 1932. Sam Randazzo founded it as a fish market, and his daughters learned to cook their grandmother's recipes, which they added onto the menu. Personal fun fact, so afterward I took a 15-minute-ish walk over to Manhattan Beach, and uh, I sat out there by the water, it was really, really nice, um, it's a, it was a, a good way to walk off walk off part of my dinner. Okay, so the cost was $45. That's not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would love to bring some friends and maybe make it into a true beach day. Their website is randazosclambar.nyc. Have you been there, Sarah?
4: No, but I'm impressed you did that. Wow. (laughs) I'm impressed they did that, too. I've been to some restaurants on (laughs) Brighton Beach, which I also feel is sort of a trek. And it's just fun to see parts of old New York that's still old New York.
3: Yeah, it was fun. I mean, I was just like... Just get on the train and go. Yeah, why not? Yeah. What, what's
4: such a big deal? Yeah, right. you're right. Yeah, so Good for you. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Thank you, and it's so good I want to talk about it. Yes. Okay, so the final question. Before I ask you to ask a question, let me ask you my question from last week. On episode 189, my guest was Michael Chernow, the founder of Seymour's and the co-founder of The Meatball Shop. He wants to know, have you been to Seymour's, and if so, do you have any bit of advice of how they can make things better?
4: Unfortunately, I haven't, so I can't. I'm so sorry. Um, I know about the meatball shop because my daughter was a waitress there. uh uh-huh. There you she, have it. She enjoyed that very much. It uh, was in between things, and she was glad that they gave her a job and she had a good time. But I'm sorry. I can't. Uh, back to I'd like to eat out more if I uh, wasn't just freelance right now and I had more money to do that. Well, if you're down for it, we'll go to Seymour's together. How
3: about that? I like Check that. Check it out. I like that. All right. Okay. Cool. Now, for next my next show, I'm having on Jordan Salcito. She is a sommelier and the f- founder and CEO of Ramona, which is an artisanal wine cooler. She's also the founder of Bella's Wines and the director of wine and special projects for Momofuku. Wow. So there's a, a, another busy lady in our We're industry.
4: Um, what would you like to ask Jordan? Well, can I can I have two questions? Sure. Okay. One is uh, what is the it wine right now? Okay, it could either be a varietal, uh, a style, anything, or or specifically one. It could be oh now it's Retsina from Greece or something. You know, Uh, I'd love to know what the it wine is, wherever you know with with Momofuku and, and what she's doing, what she sees. The other one would be very personal for me. We have wine with dinner every night. And I can't spend a ton of money on wine, so I'd love to know her recommendations about affordable wines, and I don't mean just the traditional ones, I know like you can get beautiful Portuguese reds, and back to Greece again, you can get beautiful Greek whites and probably reds for probably much more of an affordable price, but I just don't know what they are. So I'd love to know, when I say affordable, it's probably different than what other people think is affordable.
3: <laughs> you know, say around
4: 15 16 bucks Okay. Yeah.
3: Great question. I would
4: love to know the answer to that.
3: Well... I'm going to ask her, and I, I knowing Jordan, I, I think she will answer them and give us good answers.
4: So, uh, yeah, that's great. And, and regarding the It wine, I mean, it's like, you know, how kale is the It vegetable or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts, you know, nobody would touch them with a 10-foot pole and suddenly they're, everybody's darling. So that's what I'm thinking okay. about. It's like rosé, nobody cared at all about it, and it looks like she's making some rosés, Yeah, uh, working with, you know, vintners to make rosés, so it's sort of fun when you find out what's the new it wine.
3: I'll find out, and that's the show. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I, I'm just such a big fan of yours and your whole career, and I wish you much continued success Thanks, in everything Sherry. you do. Thank you. You're welcome. My guest today has been Sarah Moulton. She is a chef, cookbook author, and TV personality. She's currently hosting Season 8 of Sarah's Weeknight Meals. And you can find out all about her on her website, sarahmoulton.com. You can follow her at Instagram, Sarah S. Moulton, and Twitter, Sarah Moulton. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. Websites, bayerpublicrelations.com and sherrybayer.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify as well. Thank you again to Sarah for joining me. Thanks to my engineer, Matt. And uh, thank you for being part of All in the Industry. I'll be back next week with another live show. Hope you'll tune in then. Bye.